you're listening to Sciencing the Shit Out of MS, part of the Classroom Psychology Network. And now, here's your host, Dr. Cora Sargent. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Classroom Psychology. Wait, Classroom Psychology? No, that's not the wrong podcast. I introduced the wrong podcast, everyone. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sciencing the Shit Out of MS. I'm your host, Cora. Thank you so very, very much for joining me here. Uh, You know, pull up a pew, get yourself a tea or a coffee, or, you know, frankly, whatever whatever drink you want. I don't know why I'm dictating the drinks you should be drinking while listening to this podcast. You'll, you know, I'm not your mum. You drink whatever you like, damn it. Uh, welcome to Sciencing the Shit Out of MS. Let's talk about some positive psychology together. Um, we've got some cool stuff that we've looked at together. I have really enjoyed spending my time with you. Thanks so very much for spending it with me. And we've done some cool stuff. We've got oh week nine already. Can you believe it? As we look at acceptance activation, trying to accept the current status quo and drive ourselves towards the things that make us happy. Cognitive reappraisal, where we view the MS and the challenges it poses as a challenge that we can overcome potentially rather than a threat, which otherwise, you know, this is not to say that it isn't a threat, for sure it is. But if we perceive it as a challenge, we bias our cognition to thinking of it as a challenge, then we can overcome it. At least we can like face it rather than run from it, which would otherwise be for sure my instinct. And then the best possible self-intervention, keeping that in the back pocket uh, for times when I'm feeling not very optimistic and a drive otherwise to try to keep being optimistic as best I can. And then mindfulness. Now, before mindfulness, you know, I don't want us to get into into kind of toxic positivity, right? We've said this before, but I want to kind of keep emphasizing that the MS sucks. And (laughs) when I, when we talk together. Sometimes I I might put a spin on it that's more positive. Um, I don't want you guys to feel like it is not okay to feel awful about this thing, because it is, right? It for sure is. And I do. Um, I'm, I've, I'm coming off the back of a relapse, I'm pretty sure. It's one of those things where you you desperately try to think, well, it wasn't a relapse. It's not a relapse. It's not a relapse. I'm just having a bad day or I'm just having some kind of infection or maybe it's something I just don't know about. Maybe it's not a relapse. (laughs) But it was, I'm pretty sure. And in a couple of days, I went from being able to run every day. I was running. Um, I know you know this, right? I was running. And and then over a couple of days, I, I was running and I was walking 30 minutes a day as well. And on my walk, I had a usual little walk that I walked past our local college. And it's kind of cool little walk. And there's a bench that's about two thirds of the way around. And I went from being able to go the whole 30 minutes to finding that I needed to slow down after 20. And then to finding that I kind of found it helpful to take a break on that bench. And then I was starting to find like I was really dragging my legs up the like the last sort of couple of hundred meters to that bench. And it was difficult to get there, really difficult. And now I'm down to about 10 to 12 minutes I can walk before the, my legs give out on me. And I'm not going to lie to you in those moments, I have burst into tears, like just dragging myself back into my front door, struggling to keep myself upright, you know, unable to hold my core steady. And in those moments I have been in a bad place. You know, I felt like it's not okay. And I don't want you to feel like 
being positive is necessary, right? It's not always easy and it's not always like, it's just not always appropriate to the situation. But what I do now is I, you know, as this relapse comes to an end, it's a relapsing remitting is a real roller coaster. Like it goes from like, oh yeah, suddenly you can't stay on your feet for more than 30 minutes to cook and you can't walk for more than 10. But then it sort of gives way a little bit and you get a little bit back. It's not all back by any means, but a little bit of a a window of opportunity. And damn it, in that window, I'm going to find, I'm going to claw back the optimism. I'm going to claw back the, the skills that I lost and the abilities that I lost. I am going to fight back. Uh, that is what I'm going to do. And that this is this kind of cognitive reappraisal, seeing it as the challenge, the acceptance of how things are, and activation, the drive to kind of face this thing down, the determination under there. I think it's you that's given me that. Six months ago, I didn't have it at all. And it's you that has given it to me. It's because of this podcast and your support that I feel like I've got it. I've got that determination. I'm for sure getting out there and kicking some ass. Today, we are going to focus on a weird little intervention. Uh, It's called implementation intention. And the implementation intention intervention, which is a podcaster's kryptonite, uh, but we're going to try not to stumble over that word uh, too many times. We're going to look at that, particularly with regards to physical activity. And I'm going to use it as an opportunity to plan and activate doing physical activity more. I'm going to step-by-step claw back what I have lost. Maybe not all the way. Maybe it's not possible to get it all back. But I'm going to get as much back as I can. Damn it. Now, reviewing, of course, what we have already focused on. The other thing we focused on is mindfulness. And I've got to tell you that I have found mindfulness to be a bit of a game changer. We've talked about it before. I do it before bed. Last thing I do before I go to sleep. And I find it really calms me down and helps me to sleep really soundly. I'm sleeping really well, which I think is in part due to mindfulness. Really cool. And in the last few weeks, I have just started the mindfulness-based stress reduction intervention um, with an MSUK charity. It's very, very cool intervention. Uh, I've been really enjoying it. I think it's really helpful, not only because it provides a bit of accountability in much the same way that you do. Like, I know I'm going to be coming back here to talk to you. So I make sure, I make damn sure I'm going to do the things that I say I'm going to do. But also because I meet some absolutely outstanding people with MS. Just wonderful, wonderful people who are, you know, their experiences are so incredibly diverse. And yet there's this sort of underlying thread that they share. We all share this sort of this sort of appreciation of the uncertainty of life. Now I say it that way because I think life is deeply, deeply uncertain. And it's a sort of, I don't know, a privilege of the well to be able to like predict the future a little bit and to be able to kind of feel secure that tomorrow is probably going to be much like today, next year, probably much like this year. Um but that's a bit of an illusion for all of us, right? Like life isn't that predictable. And at least in the context of MS, for sure it's unpredictable. I don't know what next year is going to look like. Certainly not in a few years time. No idea. No idea whatsoever. And so like 
there's an opportunity here in the context of acceptance and of, of mindfulness to kind of appreciate the wonderful things that I have in my life that I want to hold on to, right? The other thing we talked about, you know, the a thread of positive psychology is having the intent, like having a, a thing that you're reaching towards, you know? We talked last week about uh, the bow that I shoot. Um, I don't haven't done it for a good six months or so. I'll, I'll do it again this summer, hopefully, if my right arm is strong enough. And if it isn't, I'll get it stronger. Uh, and, but yeah, you know, we talked a little bit about um, the bow that I use. And, and the theme of, of that little piece of writing that I did is from Serenity, very similar to Serenity. Uh, Malcolm Reynolds in, in the film Serenity in the show... Uh, I can't remember the show's name, but in the film, you see him see this ship, right? He's looking for spaceships, basically, uh, and he stops and he's this kind of, this spaceship seller's introducing him to all these fast and, and like, very brilliant ships. And he spots that one in the back, much like my did with my bow, and he, that's the one that he instantly falls in love with. And... He says this cool thing. He says, you take a bird in the air that you don't love and she'll shake you off just as sure as a turn in the worlds. She keeps you, you know, she'll keep you up when she ought to fall down. It's love that does this, right? Love keeps her in the air when she ought to fall down. Love tells you she's hurting before she keels. Love makes her a home. And for me, like if I can see my own kind of challenges as, you know, my body falling apart. But if I keep my eyes on the horizon instead of on those things, then I can like reach for whatever it is that I want to achieve, whether it be, you know, this podcast with you, whether it be like the science that I'm engaged in at, my, at the university I work at, whatever it might be, whether it be trying to be a good partner to my wonderful, wonderful wife, whatever it may be, instead of biasing my perception toward the things that are breaking down in my body, if I instead keep my eyes on the horizon, if I understand the why, then I can tolerate anyhow, right? And maybe part of the why is the kind of things that make us happy in the world, like random acts of kindness. I've got a corker on the shelf, which I'm about to deploy in the next few weeks. <laughs> I feel like a, a, a sort of I don't know. I feel like a, I don't know, a, a supervillain, but for positivity, <laughs> like, uh, it's like scheming over here, scheming my random acts of kindness uh, makes me feel very good in the world. So for sure, that one's going to be deployed in the next few weeks and oh, I'm going to enjoy that one. A gratitude, the three good things, helping make sure that people know that I appreciate them in the world. Like, I appreciate you stopping on in here. I don't know how to thank you enough for that. And, you know, just being positive in the world and trying to kind of inject some wonder into the world. I'm going to start my flagship podcast back up. Um, it's called Classroom Psychology. It's about the research around gender diversity. Uh, you know, you all know I'm transgender and we're going to review the literature. Uh, and again, that is my eyes on the horizon, the thing that I want to reach toward. And as things fall apart, it's kind of okay because I just need to keep this ship in the air just long enough to get there, right? 
I just need to keep this ship in the air just so that we can get to that horizon. Finally, the last thing we've talked about is character strengths. Character strengths being the thing that make you brilliant, right? The thing that make you, the, your personal characteristic strengths and trying to find ways to deploy those frequently in your week. For me, social intelligence, honesty, creativity, leadership, and maybe a little bit of humor. And I try and bring those things to you in this podcast and in my life as much as I can. And I think these things are making me happier in the world. I genuinely do. Now today, excuse me, implementation, intention, interventions. Silver, uh, yeah, I was right. Uh, Bryson, Franco, and Miale in 2018. Impact of implementation intentions on physical activity practice in adults. Systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. This is a cool study. Now, it's not MS-specific. We do have an MS-specific study. We will come to it. Uh, But there isn't much around implementation intentions in MS. It's a bit surprising given how much opportunity there is for people with MS to like have poorer physical activity and how important physical activity seems to be in like maintaining our physical well-being and our emotional well-being generally. Now, the reason why implementation intention is a good idea is that, you know, nobody is going to be surprised when I say that the World Health Organization developed physical activity recommendations saying adults should be Uh, engaged in about 150 minutes of aerobic physical activity of moderate intensity. So being just out of breath, just enough that you can't hold a conversation is considered about there. For me, I think it's anything above 95 beats per minute. Um, But in terms of heart rate, but, you know, get in the comments, let me know, you know, get on to (laughs) if you think that's wrong. Let me know. I need your help. Um, Or... World Health Organization says 75 minutes of intense physical activity, which I think is more like active sports, that kind of thing, like really uh, hardcore physical activity. Not much of a chance of that. I think I'm 40. (laughs) Uh, It's fine. Um, I don't see myself getting into that, but maybe swimming or something might count. Uh, Or the equivalent combination. Now, the World Health Organization says that people often don't get anywhere near this much. Um... And so that should be our intent. And the the challenge, I think, is that while the theory of planned behavior, which I think is Ashton's theory originally, while the theory of planned behavior says that the intention to be physically active should be enough, right? If we intend to do it, that should get us over the hurdle. Actually, it turns out that that isn't always the case. There is a gap between implementation of the activity and the intention of the activity, right? So if you intend to do more physical activity, you may well find at the end of the week that it just didn't happen. And if that's the case, then these studies are kind of exactly, the the reason these studies exist, the reason implementation intention as an intervention exists is because everyone finds that gap happening. So implementation intervention, uh, implementation... (laughs) I swear, why did they call it this? Implementation intention interventions. <clears throat> we'll get there. Um, so this, this cool meta-analysis looked at 13 randomized controlled trials. And it managed to find that, you know, they did these randomized controlled trials 
<clears throat> they were a mixed bag, right? Four studies didn't find a significant benefit of this implementation intention. But those four studies didn't have a particular component of implementation intention. So what we're finding is that implementation intention needs both of these two components to work. First is action planning. Now, this is really as simple as it sounds. All we need to do is to engage in if-then planning, right? To make explicit when, where, and how we'll perform the behavior, whatever that behavior might be. Whether it be like engaging in gratitude, you know, th these things loop into each other, right? Whether it be about planning your next uh, your next kind of sneaky venture to make somebody happy uh, with a random acts of kindness, right? Super stealthy, like, uh, are we going to create like a, a thieves guild, uh, like a, a reverse thieves guild together? Is that what we're going to do of, of kindness interventions? Like sneaky out there, stealthily try to improve people's lives. I love that idea. Let's do it together. Let's 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 create this re reverse thieves guild. It, listen, if you have a name for the the kindness thieves guild, please get in the comments. Uh, come find me at Classroom Psych on uh, on Twitter. Like, let me know what you think about we sh what what name for this thieves guild together we're going to create as we steal the negativity from the world and inject some kindness. That'd be kind of cool. So yeah. Action planning can incorporate these things, right? So say I, I planned to be grateful this week, but I was unable to be grateful this week, right? It just didn't happen. So action planning is about like saying, so when, make explicit in your planning, when, where, and how you're going to do the gratitude diary or when, where, and how you're going to like deliver the gratitude letter or when, where, and how you're going to, you know, engage in that random act of kindness. Or for me, when, where, and how I'm going to freaking exercise. That's the, that's the trick, right? <clears throat> so action planning is about the when, where, and how. But the second component that these uh, really cool authors, Silva and colleagues, found is that coping planning is also quite important. Now, I think coping planning might be quite important for us as people with MS or with chronic illness, because... Coping planning is about identifying and planning how you're going to manage the obstacles that might impede success, the things that might get in the way, right? Now, of the four studies, four randomized controlled trials that didn't find an effect of uh, implementation intervention, <laughs> implementation intervention interventions, of the four that didn't find an effect, all four were didn't feature this coping planning. So those four that didn't find an effect didn't feature coping planning. So coping planning is quite important. Now, there are some other really cool studies out here. Karsdorp, um, the one time that I have used this in the past, right? I Full disclosure, I have done this once before. And I'll tell you a story, right? And again, it's a story to kind of challenge the, the, the toxic positivity, right? That um, when I was first diagnosed, I used to experience quite a lot of chronic pain. Um, I, I had this weird symptom, one of the first I had, which was this kind of vertical nystagmus where my eyes would flick off center up and to the left, like in beats, it would be up, boom, 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 boom. They would be off center. And in those upbeats, every time it upbeat, I had a sort of shock of pain 
that would shoot through my core and through my right side. So specific places on my right arm and right leg would feel like someone was sort of poking me with a with a hot poker, right? And every three nights, I'd be up in the night in pain because the pain would be really bad. And I remember very clearly sitting on my couch, being in front of the TV, and I remember like being really afraid that it was never going to stop because it was really bad. And I needed a way to contain that experience. And so what I did was I created a, a plan of things that I would do and experiments, like things that I would try out to see if I could try and alleviate that pain in some way. And so I you know, I set to work, you know, I, I scienced the shit out of MS, you know, I, I had a look at, you know, maybe one day you and I will get into like a hypothesis testing. I kind of do that for a living, really trying to understand the nature of problems and, and try out different solutions. And I did that here. I just sort of, I sat in front of the TV. I knew the pain was bad. And so I tried something new. What about posture? So I tried the posture out. What about keeping my body temperature low? So I tried that out. What about taking, you know, uh, taking aspirin or something, which did nothing, but, it, you know, I tried it, didn't work. And um, what about distraction? And what I ended up doing was creating a plan. The when, where, and how, if I experienced pain, I would manage it. And so I created a pain management plan that's very much around this kind of implementation, intention, intention, implementation, <laughs> implementation, intention very implementation intention uh, centric, right? And in the end, what I did was I would sit on the couch and I would look to my plan. I would do those things. I would get out of bed as soon as I started experiencing the pain because there's no way it would stop if I was in bed too warm. So I'd get up, I would get into the lounge, close the door, keep it quiet. I would sit on the couch upright, keep my posture right, I would get cool, as cool as I could without getting too cold. So I'd blanket my toes, but not any of the rest of me, right? And keep myself as cool as I could. I'd whack something on the TV that was distracting, that would keep me distracted. And I would start the clock on my, like on my phone, right? The clock on my phone was able to sort of let me know that what I ended up finding was that I was only going to be in pain for 25 or 30 minutes, and then it would abate. Now it would come back, but it would abate. It would give me some respite. So I set the clock on my phone and I waited for those 30 minutes. And I was like 27 minutes or something. And I waited. And whenever I would sit there and the fear would come for me, like, oh, it's not going to stop. I would look to the phone and remind myself, this is as long as we need to wait for it to stop. Yeah, it'll come back, sure. But this time, this is as long as we need to wait. It was, a, And it worked. Like, it reduced the pain a little bit, but it, it was pretty intolerable while it was there, but it would abate. And I would learn how to kind of get it to abate a little bit better by experimenting with different approaches. Now, in the end, a year after I started experiencing that pain, amazingly, I went to Scotland uh to do some research with one of my trainees and I wasn't in as much pain as I was expecting to be there. I was like, well, that's interesting. And when I came back, uh, the pain started to get a bit lighter 
And then within a few weeks, the pain was gone and it has never returned. Um, I am forever grateful for that. But I know, you know, without knowing that it was implementation intention, right? I know that using implementation intention, I would be able to find a way to manage that pain if it came back or if something else were to happen akin to that. Exactly the same idea. And interestingly, Karsdorp and colleagues in 2016, turning pain into cues for coal-directed behavior, coal-directed, goal-directed behavior, implementation intentions reduce escape avoidance behavior on a painful task. They found that, you know, sure, it is experimentally induced pain, but they found that you know, this implementation intention is a means by which we can plan how to manage pain if we're experiencing quite a lot of it. Super interesting as an idea. Now, I'm not experiencing pain right now, um, mercifully. So I'm not going to do it for pain management today. But if you're interested in learning more about how I did manage the pain, you know, get into the comments, get on to, to Twitter, let me know. And I'll do an episode on, on hypothesis testing. Now, Roger and colleagues, 2023, uh, Jones and colleagues, 2021, they find that uh, one of the barriers to implementation intention is that it relies on prospective memory. So whenever we're doing it, like using an external memory aid can really help. So using some kind of like alarm or, or reminder that says, hey, you're, you planned to do this thing, make sure you go do it. We're going to use that as part of it too. Now, Carrero and colleagues found that it didn't have particularly strong efficacy as an intervention generally, which is super interesting, worth bearing in mind. Uh, again, though, I, I'm not sure, you know, Silver and colleagues, their point that that implementation intention needs coping planning. You need not only to plan for the action you're trying to do, but plan to overcome the barriers that might impede your access to it. Um, and I'm not sure if Carrero looked at that element of it. So again, maybe it's good evidence that we need to just make sure that we do that coping planning too. Now, when it comes to MS, it's Torkani, uh, Demate, Slawinski, uh, Chisilik, Gay, uh, Bezmail, and Heinzleff DeMarco in 2021. I did my very best with those names. Apologies if I made any errors there. Um, get in the comments, let me know if I made any errors there, I'll do better next time. Improving health of people with multiple sclerosis from a multi-center randomized controlled study in parallel groups. This is quite a small study, it's only got about 10 or 11 people in each group, um, but it is published in Frontiers in Psychology, which is a pretty beefy journal. Um, they did an eight-week intervention focused on physical activity, one group was a control group that just did the physical activity, essentially. One group was a mindfulness group that did mindfulness and, like, engaged in the physical activity. And one group was the intention uh, intervention. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I swear, I'll be so glad when this one's done. Uh, implementation intention group. Uh, and they found that, uh, essentially, they were able to increase the physical activity of these groups, particularly most, like the most significant effect seems to be in this implementation intention group. Um, yeah, they pushed towards 40 minutes of walking, 40 minutes of muscle building, 20 minutes of stretching and 20 minutes of coordination and balance for each person each week. 
spread out throughout the week. So it's not a huge amount. And they found that that had an impact on the sort of disease activity, not not directly on the disease activity, but the disease's impact on the person. They did a six minute walking test. People got better at walking for six minutes. You know, they did some uh, they did some sort of impact of the disease uh, tests and found that, you know, was it had an impact on how people experienced their disease. So I think just a little bit of more physical activity is the direction of travel here. And that is what I'm going to use it for. So I need to create a plan. An if-then plan, like when, where, and how I'm going to do the physical activity. And then I'm going to need to say, what are the barriers? So let's do that now, very briefly. So I'm going to aim. I'm at the moment on my exercise bike for 10 minutes most of the time, 15 minutes at a push. Now, 15 minutes at a push because I'm anxious about getting wobbly, but it's an exercise bike, it's not going over. I can do more than that, I'm pretty sure. So I am going to, every day, and we need to do the the when, how, and why, and all the rest of it. So I will do, so the biking I'm going to do twice per day, I think. <clears throat> I think that's the way to do it. Two 15-minute rounds per day. One just before lunch, so I can rest afterwards, and one just after work, so that I can rest afterwards. 15 minutes around. And then I'm going to do muscle strength training daily spread throughout the day. So every hour, because I think part of the problem, I think one of the barriers that's going to present itself is that if I try and do too much strength training at once, then the refractory period of the nerves is going to go up. Basically, when you strain the nerves too much in, in a particular go, like if you hold your arm up, and you've got weakness in the arm because of like damage to the nerves, the longer you hold the arm up, the more weak it becomes in the short term, right? And that's because the nerves undergo a bit of adaptation. Uh, just a little bit of neurology here. The nerves undergo a bit of ad adaptation where they create new sodium channels, and it makes it possible for the nerves to like communicate even though they're demyelinated. But the challenge to that means that is that basically as they are in use, they leach potassium ions and it makes the 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 it makes it harder in the short term for the nerve to continue to communicate as effectively. So the more activity we do, the weaker it will become in the very short term. I mean, like in that 15, it lasts like 15 minutes, 30 minutes. I think they found that like 15 seconds of activation. Uh, like increases the refractory period of the nerve, which is the time it takes for the nerve to be ready to fire again uh, by 15% for 15 minutes or something like that. So, uh, and like 14% is the is the line. Uh, when the nerves get that way, it gets really difficult for them to communicate. You get more conduction block and it gets harder for it to move through. So, you know, long story short, what I need to do is to spread out the muscle strength training through the day so that I so that I really strain the muscles and don't overstrain the nerves. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a different functional muscle training arm and core spread throughout the day. I'm going to do the core, one core and one arm strength training. I'm going to look to some guides online. You know, I would encourage you if you're going to follow along at home, I'd encourage you to talk to your like to the medical professionals in your life, talk to your team don't push yourself too hard. And, you know, I'm no doctor, not that kind of doctor anyway. So, you know, listen to doctors before you do anything I'm doing. 
Um, if I do it and I make a mistake, then, you know, that's on me. Uh, please look after yourselves out there. Don't feel compelled to follow along. For me, personally, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do up to 30 minutes a day on the bike in two 15-minute rounds. I'm going to do muscle strength training during the day, arms and core, but a different strength piece of training every hour to give my muscles time to recover. And then the barriers that are going to come are going to be fatigue. They're going to be the muscle wobbliness. They're going to be anxiety. And when those happen, I'm going to make sure to just kind of remind myself that I'm only doing the one and I'm going to monitor to make sure that I'm safe. And if I feel at all unsafe, then I'm going to stop and I'm going to have a think about like, how do I engage in these exercises and maybe do some hypothesis testing and try out some different strategies to make sure that I'm fully safe while doing them. So that everyone was implementation intervention. Wow, this was a long, uh, long old episode. Implementation intention intervention. I'm never saying those words again, ever. Uh, thanks so very much for joining me. And um, this is a fun one, I think. Implementation intention, fantastic uh, little uh, intervention. A good, simple way to plan to do something different and to try and actively make a change in our lives. And and I'm going to come back when we come back in a couple of weeks' time. We're going to take a look at how that went and and we'll see if we can do something new. What's next episode going to be on? Is it going to be on trying new things? Maybe extroversion? Maybe social support? Maybe creative writing? Who knows? Uh, but whatever it is, we'll get through it together. Because together, we solve one problem, we solve the next. And if we solve enough problems, then I think together we get to thrive in the context of multiple sclerosis. Look forward to seeing you in the next one.